we are in the middle of a sermon series going through the book of Ephesians. And the reason for this is that in a few weeks' time, we have, Lord willing, a new pastor who will be joining us, taking over leadership at the church. It's going to be a new season. It's one we're looking forward to. It's also one we know will come with some change. <laughs> and in light of that, we wanted to prepare ourselves by taking a step back and asking a foundational question, what is the church meant to be? And we're asking that question through the book of Ephesians. And last week, David took us through Ephesians chapter 1, where we see Paul speaking of the church as a new creation. And this week, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, where the church is presented as a new city, a community marked by reconciliation because of God's reconciliation with us. And I want to invite you now, if you have a Bible in front of you, to turn to Ephesians 2. And I'll also let you know there is an insert in the bulletin, which has an outline of the sermon. To get us into this chapter, I want to begin with a scene from a movie that I very much enjoy. Uh, the movie is The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And in this movie, there's a scene where the wizard Gandalf visits King Theoden. And Theoden at this time is under the spell of another wizard, a bad wizard. And it's a spell that has made him sleepy, physically sleepy, and sleepy to the enemies that are encroaching around his kingdom. Gandalf comes and he breaks the spell, and the next thing he does is he has Theoden's sword presented to him. And you get this close-up on the hilt of the sword, which has the emblems and crests of, uh, of, Aedin, of Theoden's ancestors, his fathers, representing the kingdom from which he comes. And it seems as if the reorientation of Theoden, for him to realize again who he is and what is called of him in that moment, comes through a looking back at where he's come from, at the people, the forefathers, the ancestors that he comes from and represents. And I want to say, in the same way, when we look at this passage in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, Paul twice tells us to remember. If Paul's plan in this chapter is to tell us what it means to be the church, it seems that Paul thinks a key part of us doing that will, by, will be by knowing from where we've come, by looking back at that. And the fact that he repeats this command twice suggests that Paul is aware that we can easily lose sight of who we once were and what exactly God has done to make us who we are. And so I think this passage that we're looking at actually breaks down into three easy parts. We can see who we were, especially in verses 11 and 12, what God has done in verses 13 to 18, and then who we are now in verses 19 to 22. And I'll just say it's worth noting, especially if you have your Bible in front of you, that the section we're looking at, which Nicole read for us, as actually is a mirror image, in a way, of the paragraph preceding it, which is verses 1 to 10, of chapter two. And in a way, that first section tells the same story. We can even see those same three parts. It's just that that first section is focused on the history, the story of all Christians, whereas our passage focuses particularly on the story of Gentile Christians, that is, Christians who don't come from a Jewish background. So we might be bouncing back and forth a bit between the two. All right, but diving in, first we're looking at what Paul says about who we were. And in short, he tells us that we were alienated from God and from one another. So he starts by telling us that we were alienated from God. Look with me at verse 1. The first thing that Paul tells us is that before God's intervention in our lives, we were spiritually dead. <laughs> verse 1, 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Two things to notice here. In John 17, Jesus speaks of life in this way. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. So if life for Jesus is knowing God, having a relationship with him, Paul is saying that where all of us start, our default is that we do not know God. We are cut off from him. This is our beginning to the story for all of us. But the next thing we know about deadness is that dead things, being not alive, have no power. So there's not only this condition of being cut off from God, there's also a suggestion here right off the bat that there was nothing that we could do to put ourselves right with this God that we did not know. And this deadness can be seen in verse 1 in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Notice that Paul says our problem wasn't just from time to time we did bad things. He says we walked in these sins and trespasses. And walking usually conveys something leisurely. I know we're students here, a number of us, and we walk fast on campus, but in general, walking is not running. We walk when it's our daily leisurely practice. In other words, what Paul is saying is that our issue, the demonstration of our deadness, was that our foundational orientation was away from God. That is what marked our lives. We were not just sinning here and there. Our lives were foundationally, fundamentally oriented away from him. And what this looks like, he tells us in verse 2, is following the course of this world, looking to the world and the world's values for how we should live as ultimate things. Maybe in Toronto, this would be um, the values of success, of making a difference, of fame. It could be values of um, family, of relationship. These are things that many people today would say are harmless things or, you know, maybe admirable things. But what Paul is saying is that when these things become the ultimate value of our lives, Paul says it is a sign of spiritual deadness. And Paul says we all begin here. There is no neutral ground. And on account of this life fundamentally oriented away from God, he tells us in verse 3 that we were all by nature children of wrath. Not only were we spiritually dead, not only were we powerless to get out of that situation, Paul also tells us on account of this, we were under God's righteous anger and destined for his judgment. And though it seems at this point things could hardly get any worse, we turn to verse 11 where Paul addresses additional barriers that Gentiles faced when it comes to them and God. These are those who are not ethnically Jewish, which was most of the audience of Paul's letter, and I imagine it's probably most of us here today. Starting in verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and then he makes this mention of this practice of circumcision. And it's good for us just to review what the Old Testament has to say about this. This origin of circumcision and the difference even between Jew and Gentile comes from the Bible, and it comes from God. God selects Abraham out of all the peoples of the world, not because he's particularly righteous in any way. God just chooses him, and he chooses his descendants to be his particular people. And in having chosen them, he makes particular promises to them, certain covenants to bless them, to never leave them, and ultimately to send them a savior. And we saw in Psalm we read in the service some of those kinds of promises. The psalmist writes, the Most High will establish Israel, and the gates of Zion are dear to him. 
The Jews, in turn, were expected to live as God's chosen people, obeying these laws that God had given them and being a light to the nations. And as a sign of the special relationship, God gives the practice of circumcision. On the eighth day, all males were to be circumcised. And this was an external practice that was meant to reflect an internal spiritual reality, a separating of the people of God unto God. The, Jew, the, the Gentiles, however, were not God's people. They had not had special promises made to them. And though sometimes in the Old Testament Gentiles are brought into the family of God, on the whole, they are outsiders. And Paul describes this in verse 14 in terms of a dividing wall of hostility. That's what the Gentiles were up against. And this wall seems to actually be a reference to a literal wall in the temple. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem was where the Jews worshipped, and there was a wall outside that temple that the historian Josephus tells us had a sign on it that said, if, the Gentile, if a Gentile comes any closer, they must be put to death. And this has a lot of significance for where the Gentiles stood with God at the time, because at the heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies. That's where God actually dwelled, and no one could go in there except the high priest and only once a year. But outside of that, there was, called the, there was something called the court of the people, and there the Jews could go. But the Gentiles could not come into that area. We could say there were literally walls between them and God. And for all of us who are Gentiles, Paul is saying, this is your story. Uh, on account of all this, in verse 12, Paul says, of the Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. And summing all of this up, Paul describes their condition, our condition, the starting point of each one of our stories as this, verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. And I just want to pause and have us ask ourselves here at Christ the King, do we believe this? Do we believe that this was really true of us before God stepped into our lives? that we were cut off from God, that our lives were fundamentally oriented away from him, that we were under his wrath, that we were without hope and without God in the world. Because it all sounds quite extreme. But the fact that Paul on two occasions here has commanded us to remember tells us we cannot lose sight of these things. If we lose sight of them, we lose a sight of who we are as the church. We lose sight of what God has done. This is where we begin. We are alienated from God. The next thing Paul tells us is that we were also alienated from one another. And these two things seem to be linked. From the vertical hostility between us and God comes horizontal hostility between one another. Notice in verse 11, Paul says that the Gentiles were called this uncircumcision. The Gentiles were called the uncircumcision. And this seems to suggest, and historians say there is something to this, that the phrase the uncircumcision was a racial slur that Jews used of Gentiles. So this practice of circumcision, which was meant to be this representation of internal spiritual dedication to God, had merely become an external practice, which some of the Jews, Paul was saying, were using as a way to look down on those who were not Jews. And lest we think the Jews were the only guilty party here, the Gentiles certainly contributed to this hostility by feeling resentment towards the superiority that the Jews felt towards them. Many of the Jews were in the category of what the Greeks would call barbarians. So we see hostility here both ways. 
And we could certainly think for a moment about the divisions that still mark our world today. Um, we are polarized. We're polarized with these divisions. Like divisions uh, between Jew and Gentile, some of these divisions are just from God. They're not inherently bad, but sin, as with Jew and Gentile, has twisted those relationships into ones of hostility. We have relationships between uh, hostility between nations. We have political divisions. The left looks at the world and says, ha, what's wrong with the world? It's all these conservatives, sticks in the mud. And then the right says the same thing. What's wrong with the world? It's these progressives that are changing everything. The wealthy look down on, the, on those who are not as wealthy. Those who are not as wealthy feel resentment towards those who have more wealth. And I think there are even divisions, we have to admit, that we see among Christians. And these divisions actually can take a similar form, where we get caught up with these external things and miss the spiritual realities behind them. We look down on one another based on what style of worship we prefer, on what the pastor wears, on uh, what denomination we're a part of. Um, these external things become lines of hostility. Paul tells us this is our default. It's part of our story. We're alienated from God, and from that, we're alienated from each other. But he goes on. He speaks now about what God has done. This is his second major point. And in short, God has reconciled us to God in Christ. Look with me at verse 4. This has got to be one of the most glorious, mind-bending contrasts in all of Scripture. But God. This tells us that the resolution of the situation in which we find ourselves is not in ourselves. It's not that we became more moral, that we started to become religious people. The only solution to this problem has to come from what God does, and God has done something. And God's intervention begins in verse 4 with his love for us before anything had changed in our lives. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. The initiative lies on God's part. And this is not just love and feelings, it drives him to action. Verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the key word to notice here is this repetition of with. With Christ we've been made alive. With him we've been raised. With him we are seated. And what this means, here Paul is taking us through these stages of the life of Christ, and he is saying, somehow, for those who have joined themselves to Christ through repentance and faith, somehow we are included in these events in the life of Christ. Christ's death becomes your death because he died in your place for your sins. You no longer need to die eternally in punishment for them because in Christ taking your death, you have already died. Christ's resurrection becomes your resurrection. He has risen to new life, and so now you also have taken on a new spiritual life. You have a new nature, a new power to live for God. And on the last day, you will take on a new physical life also. Christ's ascended status now with God in heaven becomes your status. You have access to the Father through Christ who is at his right hand. You can run to him for help in time of need. And all of these marvelous things, Paul would have us see, God has done. He made us alive together. He raised us up with him and seated us with him. And as Christians, our hearts should start to sing as we read these passages. Um, and the story continues on verse 13 as Paul now addresses the Gentiles, how God has overcome the barriers they faced also. Verse 13, we have another but. <laughs> but now... 
in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, think of this wall that the Gentiles were literally behind, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, the key agency in this sentence is not on our hands. It is what the blood of Christ has accomplished. How did this work? Verse 14, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. I just want to pause here because this begins to start feeling a little technical, and it is technical. And it also maybe feels a little confusing because that language of abolishing commandments, abolishing the law, that might get us remembering that Jesus had said that he did not come to abolish the law. So Paul here is saying he did come. So something different is going on here between what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying. Jesus seems to have had in mind the moral law when he was speaking. He was thinking, as we thought about in our series on Matthew, about how the moral commandments of God's law, which we see, for instance, in the Ten Commandments, those do not pass away. In fact, Jesus intensifies a number of them. Remember, we thought about how do not murder becomes do not be angry with one another, and do not commit adultery becomes do not look at another person with lustful intent. So Jesus fulfills the law in that sense. But Paul seems to be not looking at the moral law so much as the ceremonial law. He's referring to the system by which the Jews approached God through these practices like circumcision, dietary laws, and this intricate array of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And we could see that the dividing wall that kept the Gentiles out was part of that system. And the system had its purpose leading up to Jesus' time. It taught the Israelites that God was holy. It taught them that they were not. It taught them that the only way to approach God would be through some kind of a sacrifice. But when Jesus dies on the cross, maybe you remember, in the book of Matthew, we're told that the temple curtain, which separated off the Holy of Holies where God was, was ripped in two. And this seems to suggest that that old system of accessing God, which was true particularly for God's people but not for others, has been abolished. And a new one has been established, a new way of accessing God that applies to all people. It would no longer be the mutilation of the flesh in circumcision, which would allow approaching God, it would now be the mutilation of Christ's flesh bearing the weight of our sins on the cross. And in verse 18, we come to the summary of why God has gone through all these pains and what is, what, what is it exactly that drives God to do all these things? It's for one purpose, and that purpose is access. Verse 18, through him now, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. If you want to peer into the window of the purpose of why God has come into the world in the first place, it is, desire, it is his desire that you and me have access to him. That's what drove him to the cross. And that word access actually could be translated as introduction, like someone gives you an introduction to the royal family. It's not just a way has been opened. What drives the God and maker of all things is this longing to have a relationship with us. He wants us to walk through the door and know him. Who we were, what God has done, and now we come to the final point in the passage, who we are now. This could be spoken of in terms of we are a new city. That's how Paul connects the dots. He looks at who we were, he looks at who we are, and he says, if these things are true, what the church is, is a community of love marked by reconciliation because we've been reconciled with God. 
So look with me at verse 15 as to how this works. Paul tells us that Christ died that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Our world is still divided today. We're divided politically and in all these other ways. And I think to solve this problem, the world basically offers the message of moralism. Our world says, we're disunited. You need to focus on how we're all Canadians. That'll solve our problems. We need to focus on how we're all human beings. And that basically has been the mantra of the world since the League of Nations after World War I. <laughs> We're all humans, let's just get along. But clearly that has not worked so well. We still have hostility amongst us. We're aware of that very much today. And this is, I think, because when push comes to shove, our ties to nation and family, and even we might say our own selfish love of gain, these are ties that are far stronger than ties to humanity. When push comes to shove, Moralism doesn't bring unity. And instead of that, the gospel here offers a vision of unity, not based on moralism, but based on transformation. There are lots of special interest clubs here at U of T and obviously in Toronto. There are chess clubs for people who love chess and sailing clubs for people who like to sail. But the church is not a club. The church is not a special interest group. It's not that we gather together because we are interested in theology and we like liturgy and that kind of thing, though some of us do, <laughs> that's not what the church is. Instead, the church is a place where something objectively has happened. God has acted in this way such that we have become joined with Christ. There is an objective difference between who we were and who we now are. This is a community that God has acted upon. It's not a common interest so much as something that has been done to us. And we have, therefore, a new identity that grows out of this story, the story of who we were and what God has done. And that fuses us together into a community. And what the church, therefore, is now could be spoken of as a new city. Cities are cosmopolitan. We are diverse, and yet we are united in the sense, at least, that we live close to each other. And heaven is actually described as a city in Romans in the book of Revelation. Uh, maybe you know that scene in Revelation 7 where all of the nations are singing praise to God. And the fact that they're still called nations tells us that that identity of ethnicity has not faded away. We will still be men and women in heaven, it seems. We will still be whatever background we come from. But what's happened is that those identities have been transcended by a larger identity, that identity of being one with Christ, that identity of having been made now in a community where we share a common love for Christ because of what he has done for us. And that has become a love for one another. And just as we close, Paul looks now at four images, four metaphors as to what therefore the church should look like if all of this is true. And I just wanna consider each of the four in turn because the fact that he gives us four tells us that Paul thought any one of them was incomplete. He felt each one added something that the others missed. So just look at these images with me now. The first image is biological, the body. Verse 16, he has done this that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. What does the image of a body tell, tell us? Well, Paul, we know elsewhere in his writing, speaks a lot about this idea. One way he thinks of, talks about it is in 1 Corinthians 12, where he speaks about how parts of the body are all vital. 
you can't have an eye looking down on an ear or an ear looking down on a foot because each part of the body is necessary. If the whole body were an eye, Paul says, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. The church is made up of different people with different giftings, but each one brings something vital, vital that the body needs as we all work together in the same goal, following Christ. That's the body. The second image is political, kingdom. Paul writes in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. When you become a Canadian citizen from being a permanent resident, one change that happens is that your status in Canada can no longer be revoked. You don't have to renew your citizenship every five years. There's something that comes with citizenship that involves a sense of belonging. You belong here. This is your home. They greet you differently at the border when you can show that passport. Paul is telling us, and the Bible tells us elsewhere, that our live in the world. We are not citizens of the world. It is there where we live. And the church, in a sense, therefore, is like an outpost of heaven. When you enter the U.S. consulate here, they have all that security because it's where we belong because our citizens, citizenship is in heaven. Number three, uh, a familial image. Um, verse 19, we are also members of the household of God. What does this tell us? Citizens of a country, maybe you've seen another Canadian when you're overseas, and you bond together because, you know, we have this in common. There's a sense of allegiance between citizens, but it's nothing like the family. In a family, you have intimacy, you have understanding. And Paul is using family language to talk about what the church should be like. And he did that even in Ephesians 1. He spoke about how we're all adopted into the family of God. God is our father. And just like a little child, no matter how important their father might be, can tap on the door of the father's office and run to him and have access. So we have access to God, our father. We're adopted. Paul in Romans 8 speaks of Christ as our brother. We, he is the firstborn of many brethren. Our brother Christ, he sympathizes with us. He intercedes for us. He understands us. In the church, we are tied to one another by these relationships of love and care. The fourth image that Paul gives us is spiritual. It's the image of a temple. Look with me at verse 20. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirits. In one sense, a temple is a building, and we could think about it that way. If we're a building, each of us are stones. And stones, what are they doing? They're leaning on one another. The Bible speaks about how we should be bearing one another's burdens as we rest on Christ, our ultimate rock. But this is no ordinary building because it's a temple. And the word for temple here isn't even the generic word for temple used to describe the Jewish temple. It's more the word used to describe the Holy of Holies. This is the sanctuary. This is the place where God dwells. Which means that in some miraculous sense, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, when we gather together, when two or three are gathered in Christ's name, he is with us. And at this point, I think I just want to notice one thing that's true of all four of these images is that they are all corporate. They're all collectivities. There is no role here for the individual Christian. 
It's not that church on Sundays helps us become better Christians individually, though we do hope that happens. No, in God's schema, he primarily speaks of us as a collective, as a body. He is present with us when we gather. And so to sum all this up, here's what I have from these four images. The church should be the embodiment of Christ's reconciliation, where all Christians belong, where all value each other as integral parts of God's body with something to contribute that's vital. And all here are bound together with love and affection. Sadly, of course, the church very often does not look this way and has not looked this way. And there are ways in which here at Christ the King, we fall far short of this also. These troubles even began in the New Testament time. Remember in Galatians when Paul rebukes Peter for refusing to eat with Gentile Christians. Remember in the book of 1 Corinthians when Paul laments these divisions between some Christians who followed Apollos and others who followed Apollo, others who followed Paul and others who followed Peter. We can divide ourselves um, easily even within God's body. There's denominationalism, there's disunity, pride, jealousy, grudges. And these are things we should see are an offense to Jesus. Because the body that we are is not just any body, it's his body. And it's also an offense to the world, because the world should be able to look at us and see the way we live together and say, there is something different about these people. They see the gospel in us. And so this should weigh on our hearts, the ways that we fall short of this. And it's easy to speak at a very high level about the issues with the church, and yet that's maybe not as helpful as Paul would want us to be thinking. And so I want to close with some questions that are more practical and personal to each one of us and where we fit into this new city, the church, here at Christ the King. So here are some questions. One, if God is with us when we gather, are we making church a priority in our lives? Not just are we making God a priority, though that's a good thing, but is the wider body that God has called us to a priority for us? If Christ the King is the church that you mostly go to, have you made a commitment to it? Maybe by becoming a member, joining a small group, or if you can't do that, at least making a commitment to come each week on Sunday. And when we come to church things, do we come for the bare minimum and slip out as soon as we can, or do we commit to building relationships and being in each other's lives? Second set of questions. When we think of Christ the King, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Are we a kind of club that all loves theology and liturgy? <laughs> do we think more of what we do in terms of worship? Do we think of the history of the church and how it was founded? Or do we think of the story of reconciliation that God has objectively built into our lives? That's what Paul wants us to remember. When we look at, number three now, look at one another here at Christ the King, what do we see? Do we let differences in stage of life, in education, other things, keep us from extending love to one another? Do we see each person, however different from us, as possessing vital gifts for the body and life of the church? Do we each individually make an effort to make people feel that they belong here in our times after the service, in our small groups, in the informal friendships that we have? This is not saying we have to be best of friends with everyone in the church, but there should be bonds of affection between all of us. Number four here, are we peacemakers? Do we make every effort to remain at peace with one another? Do we refuse to allow hurts to fester into division? Or do we seek reconciliation where there's been a breach? And I just want to, as I, as I close here, just say it might be that if we're honest, 
if we do these things, they'll be very much duty driven. <laughs> like, okay, I guess I should do these things. But maybe we don't really feel the desire to grow in these ways. I think if that's the case, we just need to go to God. We need to go and tell him that we feel this way. We need to ask him to give us his spirit to press into our hearts these things which we may in our heads believe to be true, but haven't reached our hearts to change the way we feel about one another. About how God has drawn near to us in the greatest possible way. If that's true, we need God's help to make us feel a longing for drawing near to others. It might be the takeaway from the sermon is just that this is a whole area I need to pray about because I can tell I don't have a heart for this. So as we grow in these ways, though, we see that God gets glory. The gospel has its effect in our lives, and we are witnesses to the world of God's power, his power to make us new and make us one. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.